0: As the Apostle Paul was coming to the culmination of his ministry, he wrote to his trusted friend and partner, Timothy, these extremely important words. But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. By the time Paul penned these words, he had spent a great portion of his life imparting knowledge to believers in the Lord Jesus and presenting the gospel to people who weren't. His teachings, given under the guidance and the auspices of the Holy Spirit himself, are considered to be among the deepest theology in all the Bible. Peter even proclaimed that some aspects of the Apostle Paul's writings were, to use his words, hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort. Yes, much of what Paul taught, would come under the heading of heavy theology. He taught on subjects such as soteriology, Christology, ecclesiology, pneumatology, eschatology, just to name a few subjects that the Holy Spirit deemed necessary for the believer to have a firm grasp of in order to live their life appropriately after salvation. These are things that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know about. Things like soteriology, which is just a $100 word for the doctrine of salvation. Christology, teaches you about Jesus Christ. Ecclesiology, what does the Bible say about the church and how we ought to worship? Eschatology, what does the Bible say about things that are going to happen in the future? And not just when is the tribulation coming, how long does it last, when does it begin, when is the rapture going to be? Not those kind of eschatology things, which those are eschatological events. There's a pretty big eschatological event that we all ought to be interested in, and that's the eschatological event of death and heaven. For the believer, When we go to a place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, the old things have passed away. That's part of eschatology. This is heavy theology, but the Holy Spirit deemed that theology necessary for us. It's not a throw-in. It's not just for something that people happen to be interested in that. Well, if you're interested in a spiritual life, these are things that, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote. There's a key idea there, and that is that the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write this theology because we need it. It is, I admit, somewhat frustrating when I hear Christians malign the study of the Word of God or diminish the importance of the study of the Word of God when it's clear that an understanding of God's self-disclosure in the Scriptures is not an optional but a vital part of our lives as we live in this life after salvation. And yet when he approached the end of his ministry, the end of his life, because they were the same, he says that the goal of everything that he taught should be love. The ultimate application of soteriology, Christology, ecclesiology, pneumatology, eschatology, should be love. Some folks read a passage like 1 Timothy 1, 1.5, and they say something like this, I don't need the heavy theology. I'm just going to get right to the point. I'm going to skip all that, and I'm just going to love. After all, I know how to love. It's innate. It's inborn, isn't it? Or I've had some tell me this. This is a direct quote. Some that have even attended here one time or another. I already know what I need to know. I don't need any more knowledge. I just want to love. If you would have been in a position to say something like that to the Apostle Paul when he was walking this earth, he probably would have sighed and maybe even behind your back rolled his eyes. I suspect that he might have said something about missing the point somewhere along the conversation and then asked somebody if, there was, if somebody nearby if there was some sharp object that he could poke himself in the eye with after hearing something like that, after spending his whole life imparting this knowledge to have somebody say, well, I'm going to skip all that and just go to the love. That's missing the point. The knowledge comes first, and then the love flows from that knowledge. Now, I'm not denying that someone could love without knowledge, but I am saying from a biblical standpoint, biblical love, if I'm going to call it today, biblical love flows from biblical knowledge, which gives us a love for God and allows us to love other people. You see how it works? You can't just skip to the end. It doesn't. Work that way. Paul was learning right up until the time he was martyred. When he was in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome, he asked for the parchments to be sent to him so he could continue his studies, and not just so he could write another book. You know, sometimes we do that. Sometimes pastors get into that. They study so that they can preach a sermon. That's a bad idea. Those of you that are studying for ministry, that's a bad idea. You study so that it can change you first. And then when you preach it, it's real. Otherwise, people can tell. They can always tell when you don't own the subject. So never just study it to preach it to somebody else or study it so you can teach the kids up in the children's department. You study it so it can change you. And then when it changes you, then it can change other people. Hypocrisy has no place in the Christian life. If Paul studied the Word of God up until the day he died, how foolish it is, how utterly foolish it is For us to say, I already know all that I need to know. Would you go to a doctor that said that they already know all they need to know? Not me. When I go to the doctor, I want to see a stack of medical journals on his or her desk that are well-worn. I want to know that they've been studying. Would you feel comfortable with a CPA that says, I already know all that I need to know? In fact, I skipped the last continuing ed classes that I was supposed to go to. I didn't go to those. It was down in Galveston. I sat out on the beach. Well, I wouldn't be impressed with that. I want them to go to the classes. I want them to know everything they can, up-to-date, current knowledge. Or an attorney that says, well, I quit learning years ago. I don't need to know anything. You wouldn't go to one. You wouldn't, in in any other professional sense, or a teacher that said, no, I I haven't studied in years. I put my lesson plan together about 12 years ago. I haven't changed it since. (laughs) You wouldn't feel comfortable with that, would you? We study in every other field. We keep on top of, our, of the field. Hopefully, if you're competent, you do. No matter what your field is. So why would we take the most important thing in life, and that's our relationship with God, and say, well, I'm going to skip all that. don't need to know anything. I just want to love. No, instruction comes before love. The goal of all of our instruction, that means the outcome, the pinnacle, the climax of all our instruction, should be love. At least... Instruction, biblical instruction, comes before mature love, the kind of love that Paul was referring to in his first letter to Timothy. Practically, as we learn, our love matures. And by that, I mean our love for God. We come to have a deep, abiding appreciation and love and adoration for who God is, for, what, for who Jesus Christ is, and for what He did for us. That's why we follow our Lord's command and celebrate the communion service on a regular basis. To give us an opportunity to pause and remember Him and to love Him, just to love Him. So when we talk about mature Christian love, we're speaking about love for God first, that's genuine, based upon a knowledge of who God is, and then based upon that, a love for one another. We have this body of information that floods our souls. And what comes out of us ought to be loved. That should be the norm. That's what God expects of us. Having said all that, is it possible for a believer in the Lord Jesus to have a vast amount of knowledge and fail to love? Of course it is unfortunately it doesn't automatically follow that we get information about god and that information transforms us so that we love god unfortunately that's not always the case and as you might have guessed that's the subject of our lesson this morning in 1 corinthians chapter eight but before we get into the exposition itself of the passage though i want to stress again so you understand before we get into this chapter knowledge is a good thing Knowledge is a good thing about pretty much any field, but especially knowledge about God and His Word. It's a good thing. Knowledge of the Word of God is an expected thing for the believer. But here's the point of today's message. Knowledge alone does not guarantee love for either God or our fellow man. Knowledge alone is not going to do it. Now, this is not the first time you've heard this message. It may be the first time you've heard this message from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But it's not the first time you've heard this message from this pulpit. We've spent a lot of time in James. And remember what James said. knowing's not enough. It's got to be knowing and doing. Now what Paul's going to do, he's going to refine that message. And he's going to define the doing as loving. So, as we get into some background information before we get into the text itself. In the church at Corinth, there were believers, believe it or not, who thought that they knew enough. I can see why they might. The Apostle Paul had personally taught them for a period of time. They had been believers actually, oh gosh, for several years now. They must know enough already. Well, that was their their attitude. And they were sure, at least if they knew enough, they were also sure that they knew more than other people in the church. It became a competition thing. And they assumed, since this one group assumes that it has more knowledge than the other group in the church... They assume because of their knowledge, and I'm going to say knowledge alone, but they assume that because of their knowledge they're superior Christians to the other people in the church. This group will get a rude awakening in this chapter. For Paul is going to issue a very strong corrective in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to that type of thinking. To the type of thinking, again, that believes that knowledge is all there is. That you take in all this knowledge of the Word of God and then it stops there and nothing flows out from you that it looks anything like love. Paul says, You might think you're mature, but you got another thing coming. You're not anywhere close to being as mature as you assume that you are. So, this is a strong corrective in this chapter. It's not knowledge alone that makes one a mature Christian. May I say that again? It is not knowledge alone. That makes one a mature Christian. It's applied knowledge. Specifically, love exhibited that marks the mature Christian. That is oh so critical to your spiritual life and to mine. Because we are a church that, can I use the word in a, in a good way, that prides ourselves on learning the word of God. We pride ourselves in biblical exposition but if that, if that learning of the word of God and the presentation of God's truth and biblical exposition doesn't lead to love, we've done nothing. Hence the scripture reading this morning. We're nothing if we don't love. And as you might can tell in your own reading of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to lead up to this concept and it's going to just explode in 1 Corinthians 13. All Christian behavior should be guided by the principle of love. Corinth as you know by now, it was a very religious city. Now, I'm not using the term religion and Christianity as synonyms there. Corinth was a very religious city. I don't mean a theistic city. Corinth was a polytheistic city. There were many temples temples in Corinth. There were many gods, little g-gods, worshipped in those temples. Idol worship was a way of life in Corinth. Societies were formed within the Corinthian culture based upon which gods, little g, that you worshipped. So they had a common bond with regard to their polytheism. There is some historical evidence that if a person desired to do commerce in Corinth, participation in idol worship was expected. If you're going to function doing business in that city, then you needed to worship like they worshipped. Failure to do so would have marked one as an outcast. Business could be done by outsiders, but it would be much more difficult than if you were part of the society or part of the cult. There are small towns in Wyoming where I spent some time in my high school years where it is difficult, if not impossible, to do business, to do commerce. If you're not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Some of those little towns are 80% Mormon in their population. They're close-knit communities. And it's tough to break through in those close-knit communities unless you worship with them. But it's not just Wyoming. The same could be said of some small towns in Texas and Lutheranism. Or some small towns in South Louisiana and Catholicism. So you kind of get the drift of what Corinth might have been like. Idol worship in Corinth involved animal sacrifice. That's going to be a part of this chapter. And the meat that was sacrificed in these temples that were dedicated to idols was either consumed in the temple itself, in some sort of festival, or that meat would have been taken to a meat market, and then it would have been sold to the general public in the meat market for consumption in individual homes. As you might can expect, this created a problem for believers in Corinth. They knew from the teaching of the Old Testament, and I'm sure what Paul had taught them as well, that they were supposed to keep themselves apart from anything that was associated with idolatry. But as we cover this passage this morning, I want you to remember, keep in the back of your mind as we cover these details, there's more to it than just the meat that's sacrificed to idols. There's an overarching principle that we're going to see in this chapter that has a lot more to do than just with the details of the chapter. Paul is going to be making a point. And the point is not so much about whether we're going to buy a ribeye or filet at the meat market where the meat was, had been sacrificed to, to idols. That's, that's only the illustration that he's using to make his overall point. There's a huge message the huge message here is that believers ought to be treating one another in love. And what was happening in Corinth wasn't love. It was something, but it wasn't love. Well, let's look at the passage and see what we can learn from this passage this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the passage begins this way. Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known As he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Paul is, as he's done previously in this letter, and will in in the future too, he's addressing another Corinthian question that had been sent to him. But in doing so, he's going to deal with a much bigger issue. In fact, it's not just this chapter. The next three chapters are going to deal with the same issue. The issue of love. And specifically, how does love function? in interpersonal interaction. How does it function? Biblical love, he will teach us. Biblical love is not self-focused, but it's focused upon the needs of others. Biblical love is willing to set aside personal rights if setting aside those rights will benefit others. Verse 1 is a favorite of those who put down biblical instruction and biblical instructors. But let's make sure that we actually understand the point of this verse before we misuse it. Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Please understand, Paul is not arguing against knowledge here. In fact, he is in the process of imparting knowledge as he writes this. So it's a gross misapplication of this passage, as some people have thrown this verse back at me. You know, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, as if we ought to skip the knowledge and move to the love. That's exactly what he's arguing against in this passage. That's what he argued against in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So no, that's not what he's doing. He's arguing here, and listen to this carefully. He's arguing here that there is a scenario where one can have knowledge and it not be beneficial but destructive. Can you imagine that? There's a scenario where you can come to church, where you can learn the word of God and it actually is destructive and not beneficial. And that might have your attention this morning. The scenario is twofold. The individual that Paul's speaking to or the individuals in this con- in this context thinks that they know more than they really know. And that's always a dangerous person in any field. It's good to know what you don't know. When you don't know what you don't know, then you're in big trouble. But these people didn't know what they didn't know. And the second scenario here is that the individual knows, but love is not flowing from that knowledge. So Paul's going to tell the person in this passage, you think you're hot stuff, sport. you got all this biblical knowledge, but you're not loving as a result of it. So you're not such hot stuff after all. This is a sobering message. The phrase, we all have knowledge, is probably a slogan that was used by the prideful in Corinth. Paul just repeating it. So he says, we know that we all have knowledge. This is what you think you're saying. Yeah, we all have this knowledge. Now, the specifics of the knowledge is not mentioned here. We don't know if it's soteriology or Christology or eschatology, ecclesiology. We don't know what the specifics are. But we do know that it probably refers in some, at least backdoor way, to the subject at hand, which is things that are sacrificed to idols. So Paul's saying as he begins this, listen, you wrote me a concerning idols. Listen, I know you already know all this. Has a professor ever stood before you and said that? Listen, I know you guys already know everything you need to know. I know you know all this, but take your pencil out anyway just in case. There, there's something that we present today in today's class on calculus or algebra or history that you just didn't know before you got here. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. There is a little bit of implied Sarcasm, if I could. But it's sarcasm that's motivated by the Holy Spirit, so it's okay. Listen, I know you know it a lot, Paul says, but there might just be one or two little things that you could learn, Corinthians. Or as my dad used to say when he was in one of the moods that he got in when I was a little arrogant sometimes, he said, sport, listen to me and learn something which typically came at times when I didn't think I had anything to learn, and I was proclaiming him the truth the truths of the world. And he would very calmly just sit down and explain to me that it wasn't that way. And I always appreciate it. Maybe not at the time, but I, I do appreciate it now. The last phrase in, this, in these first three verses, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him, serves as a subtle reminder of the Corinthian position, the, the individual Corinthian believer's position "...in Christ as opposed to the pagan community and idol sacrifice." So he's drawing a separation here between the two. You'll remember that the the Corinthians had this problem with allowing too much of the culture. The Corinthian believers had a problem with allowing too much of the culture to seep into the cracks of the church at Corinth. And so the church at Corinth was looking more like the culture than it should have. The, The Corinthian culture was influencing the church rather than the church influencing the culture... So before entering into this discussion, he wants them to remember that they're supposed to minister to that culture, that they had it backwards. They're the ones who are supposed to be ministering to the culture and not allowing the culture to negatively affect them. Now in verses 4 through 6, he gets back to the subject. Now therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. We know, there's that word again, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. Freedom if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Yes, Paul says, a thinking Christian will recognize that idols represent deities that don't actually exist. There's only one God, and everything that that is came through that one God. That includes the wood or the metal out of which the idol is fashioned. In chapter 10, some of you may have already read ahead, but in chapter 10, Paul's going to say these gods with a little g, these idols are actually demons. It's demonic activity. But I'm going to wait until we get to chapter 10 to cover that material, especially because of time this morning. But having said that, having said, having acknowledged that we recognize that there's really no no such thing as a God. I was just in India. India is one of the most polytheistic countries on the planet. Certainly the most polytheistic that I've ever visited. I've been there four times now. The number of idol temples is, is almost innumerable. Everywhere you go, there are idols. Even on the street, they'll have small little sanctuaries for idols. And if you really believe that there were other gods, little g, you might freak out when you see stuff like that. You might might also almost get kind of nervous like a horror film of some sort. But when we know that there really is no such thing as a little g god behind the idol, then we can rest a little more comfortably. And then when we find out in chapter 10 that the powers behind this idolatry are little g god demons then we really can understand if we just stay on God's side, the demons can do nothing to us. So there's nothing to freak out about. But Corinth was a very polytheistic city. Paul's saying, listen, okay, I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that that idols are really nothing. There is no such thing as an idol. It's just a statue. And the statue is made out of something that God, our Father, made. But then he says, essentially, but having said that, then in verse 7, however, Not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now you need to to concentrate here because verse 7 is speaking about believers, and that might seem a little strange at first because part of being a Christian is understanding that there is only one God. Polytheism and theism, polytheism and Christianity... Cannot mix. You you can't syncretize those two. But Paul is actually speaking to believers here who have trusted Jesus Christ, who have at least in principle acknowledged the fact that there is only one God, but in practice, they're not living consistently with what they know to be the truth. That shouldn't shock us. We do that all the time. But these people knew, at least when they came to Christ, they know there's only one God, but yet they're freaking out about this whole meat sacrifice to idol scenes because they're taking... The idol worship seriously. And what they're doing, if we can follow Paul here, these are people that know that they're not supposed to have anything to do with idols. But they're buying the meat anyway, and they're eating it anyway, and in doing so, they're violating their own conscience. And you know, we've been taught before from the Word of God that anything that violates the conscience is a sin. For example, to take something absolutely absurd, it I can assure you it's not a sin for one of these hymnals to fall onto the floor. But if somehow you were convinced in your mind, absolutely convinced in your mind that it would be a heinous sin for a hymnal to fall on the floor and you took the hymnal and put it on the floor, have you sinned? Well, yes, you have. Because in your soul, you were convinced that it was a sin, and you did it anyway. You see? That's the point that Paul's making here. He'll make it more strongly in just a moment. And so what was happening to these people in Corinth, this one group that didn't have the knowledge, that weren't as well-versed as some of the other people in Corinth, and everybody points to these as though they're the real problem in this passage, and we're going to see in a minute, that's not really the group Paul's speaking to. This group was convinced that if they eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol, that they were sinning, but they were doing it anyway. So Paul said they were sinning, because they were sinning against their conscience. Now in reality, since, since an idol is nothing, a person should be able to eat the meat that was sacrificed to an idol, and there would be no problem with their conscience at all, because there's no, there's nothing, there is no such thing as a real idol, or a deity behind the idol. So that's why he says in verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. In other words, they've allowed the culture to so influence them that they become convinced that maybe there are a whole lot of deities. They eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. Then the final phrase, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. In other words, they've sinned. All Christians understand that there's no such thing as a little g-god. At least I would hope they would, but almost by definition, you have to. And again, I don't believe that a true polytheist can be a Christian. But some Christians just don't think like they ought to think, and it brings negative results, which in this case is a weak conscience. Then in verse 8, verse 8 tells us that eating food is actually neutral. To use my illustration again, it's like a songbook that's on the floor. I see one over here and one over here. It's not sinful. It's not sacred. In this case, eating meat that had been sacrificed to a so-called idol was in itself not sinful. And that's the situation he's dealing with in verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we eat it, nor the better, if we don't eat it, nor the better if we do. And in verse 9, we come to the heart of the matter. Now this is the heart of the matter. But take care. Now he's switched back to speaking to the people that have all this knowledge. Take care lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat the things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Now you see what's happening? You have a group of people that have less knowledge, observing people that have more knowledge, doing something that they think is sinful, so because they see the person that they assume is more mature doing it, they think, well, they do it, and it's sinful, so I can do it. must not be any big deal to sin in that way. That's the key idea. They still think it's a sin, so they do it because they see you doing it, not understanding that it's not sinful. That's a different concept. And by doing that, you've caused them to stumble. Now, I know that's a little bit complicated. Let me say it one more time. The more knowledgeable believer understands that meat that was sacrificed to idols could still be consumed. Paul tells us in another place, anything you receive with thanksgiving, that's fine. Now, they're not supposed to be consuming it in the temple service itself. But it's okay to consume that meat. But you have somebody else that comes along with you. Let's say they come over to dinner at your home. And they're convinced in their conscience that eating meat that's sacrificed to an idol is a sin. You sit down at the dinner table and you're serving steak that night in Corinth. And the person says, Oh, this is a good piece of meat. Where'd you get it? And your wife says, Well, I went down to the Temple Market and hubby over here cooked it on the grill tonight. And the person's saying, Wow, these are the people that are allegedly the more mature in the church. And they're eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. Now, they don't think to ask... Well, is it okay to eat me sacrificed to idols? Is there some information that you have that tells me this is not sinful? In this scenario, what they're doing is they're going to go ahead and along and eat it because they see the person that they respect doing what they think is a sin. So they say, well, okay. Misery loves company. I'll do it too. That's what he means by causing them to fall. So again, he's telling the mature believers, or at least I should back up. Not the mature believers, but at least the believers that have knowledge in this passage. That they should take care, lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul does call, in this passage, he does call the people that don't have as much knowledge the weak. But you know what he doesn't do? And, and this, is, this speaks volumes by its absence. He never calls the people that have knowledge the strong. Not here. And the reason he's not going to call them the strong is because they're not doing what he's telling them in verse 9. We all have certain liberties in this life. And this was a liberty that these people had. To eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, it's no big deal. It's not sinful. It's morally neutral. That's what he says in verse 8. But if not everybody has that knowledge and they see you doing it, they see you exercising your liberty, and they don't understand your liberty, then you've caused them to fall. And what Paul is saying is take care lest this liberty of yours, this freedom that you have, you're exercising this freedom in a way that causes other people to fall. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not as conscious if he's weak be strengthened to eat the things sacrificed to idols. But verse 11, for through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. We have certain liberties in this life. Let me bring up another one that is sure to stir up your interest and to get anyone's attention that has been fading and wondering how long the line at Luby's is right now. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ made wine, and Jesus Christ drank wine. Now, I know all the historical data about that, that the wine was probably diluted, anywhere from one part to one part to one part to 20 parts. I understand totally that the reason that they drank wine was because of a water purification problem. But the fact is, at the wedding of Cana, Jesus Christ made full strength wine. And it was a wine that the wine steward considered to be the best wine that he had ever tasted. He made it and he drank it. So, my friends, you're going to have a real difficult time. And I know some Christians try, some of my friends try, some of my seminary professors have done it. You're going to have a real hard time convincing any thinking person that drinking wine in and of itself is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. The consumption of too much wine is a sin. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, other places as well. But the consumption of wine in and of itself as a beverage when it's not overdone, when it's not overdone, and if you're not an alcoholic, seriously. If you're an alcoholic, please don't take anything I say to say, well, it's okay to have one sip. If you're an alcoholic, don't have a sip. Seriously. But assuming those conditions are met, then the the consummation of wine is not a sin. But there are people who believe that it is. And if you're serving dinner at your home, for example, and you know good and well that there are people that are coming that consider it to be sinful, and you serve it anyway and consume it in front of them anyway, first of all, you're not a very good host or hostess when you do that. And second of all, you're violating the liberty that God gave you. You have the liberty to consume a nice glass of wine. Now, this is nothing personal to me. I don't particularly care for wine that much. So it's not like I'm trying to do an apologetic on my right to drink wine. But I'm saying this to you. If you want to have a glass of wine, and you understand that it's not sinful, then more power to you. But if you're around other people that think it is, and they look up to you. Now, this is this scenario has got to be very carefully managed. And if they look up to you as the more knowledgeable Christian in the room, now keep in mind, they think it's simple, sinful, they see you doing it, and when you sit down at dinner, they say, well, he's doing it, and I'm going to do it. Not because they're convinced it's right, but because they're convinced that this sin thing must not be a big deal at all, then you have sinned by exercising your liberty in the wrong way. What ought to be done? What probably ought to be done is maybe the next time you see them, if, you might could bring up a conversation about the wedding at Cana. You, you might can educate the person, but that dinner's not the place to do it. Allow them the time to grow, just like somebody allowed you the time to grow. Don't force your liberty down someone else's throat. That's the message here. So the, the polemic here, if there is one, is not against the person who has less knowledge, who thinks it's actually sinful to eat that meat. The polemic in this passage is against the person who has the liberty that is ruining the other person by the by the uh, by the unrestrained use of their liberty. And then in verse twelve, look, and thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So in the scenario Paul brings up, who's the sinner? The person with the more knowledge. I never forget the first time I taught this. It was uh, one of the Bible studies we had early on. It wasn't at the church. It was on a Wednesday night Bible study that actually was at my office. And there's only one person here I can see this morning that was at that Bible study. I'm not going to say the name of the person I'm talking about. They're not here. But it's a big, big, strong fellow. And the first time I got through teaching this, or actually I was in the process of teaching it, I just saw him sitting over there and he was just shaking his head. Now, being the perceptive biblical instructor that I am... (laughs) I looked over at this big old boy who is, by the way, a very good friend of mine still to this day. And I said in his name, I said, is there a problem here? And he said, there most definitely is a problem. And I said, well, okay, what's the problem? He said, what you're telling me, you always love it when they start that way, what you're telling me is that I'm to allow a weaker believer to run my life for me. That's not right. And I said, well, first place, my friend, I'm not the one telling you. This is God speaking through the Apostle Paul. God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to you through the Apostle Paul. So let's get that off the table right now. We're We're just telling what the passage says. But I said, you know what? I think you've got a grasp of it, but only a partial grasp. Yes, you have liberties. But yes, with those liberties come certain responsibilities. And the responsibilities of someone who knows more and knows about the liberty, is to love the person that doesn't have quite that knowledge until they can get that knowledge. That's your responsibility. Now, it took a while, but he finally got it. You see, sometimes love will have us set aside something that's perfectly legitimate when somebody else doesn't think it is. Now, this is my view, and I told him that this that night. If after a period of time, and the the individual has had an opportunity to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if after they've had instruction, that, for example, in this case, meat that was offered at the temple was was offered really to nothing in that case. There's nothing moral or immoral about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. If after they've been presented with the information, and then they continue to say, well, I don't believe it. I know that's what the Bible says, but as soon as somebody says that, just forget it. You know, don't don't ever let those words come out of your mouth. I know that's what the Bible says, but. But if somebody does that, and they refuse to grow, and they refuse to learn, then that's a different matter. I still don't think it's a matter where you personally offend them. But it may be that you want to invite somebody else to dinner that night, frankly. I mean, you don't have to hang out with people that are purposely going to pull you down. That's not what this passage is about. These are innocent people. These are people that just need time to grow, that aren't aware of certain liberties that are given the Christian. And if you thrust your liberties in their face before they have any understanding at all, you're the one that sinned. You're the one that sinned. Don't blame them. And so the conclusion that Paul comes to is a striking one. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble... I'll never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. May I interject? If wine causes my brother to stumble, I'll never drink wine again so that I won't cause my brother to stumble. It's more important to exercise love than it is to exercise a right as a Christian. That's the point of this passage. Again, The people who have knowledge in this passage are never called strong. And you know why they're not called strong? Because they're not exercising love. You can have all the knowledge in the world. But if love doesn't flow from that knowledge, then you are not a mature believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how much knowledge you have. And by the way, when you get in trouble, don't say, I'm relying on my doctrine. Or I'm relying on my biblical knowledge. When you get in trouble in life, when you're suffering, when things are bad, when your child has just been diagnosed with cancer, or your father has passed away, or the boss says you've lost your job, it's a technicality, but but I want to make this distinction. You're not relying on your knowledge. You're relying on the one that you know about. You're relying on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the knowledge allows you to do that, allows you to rely on the person. You see... It's, it's almost an occupational hazard with a lot of us that have been around the Word for years and years and years and years. To think that just because we know we're superior to somebody else. Or just because we know that we're mature. I had that idea when I was 21 years old. I thought, you know what, I'm going to study the Word of God every day for the rest of my life. And at least by the time I'm 31, I'll be a mature believer. Then I examined myself at, at 31, and I thought, well, maybe by the time I'm 41. And then at 41, maybe by the time I'm 51, I'm 55 now, and I'm, I ask the Lord for you know, some more time left on this earth because I realize that, that the maturation process takes from now until the day he takes you home. It's never something. The Christian life is not something you take a break from or a holiday. I say, well, I know enough. I'm just going to love. No. You know, and you need to know more, and you need to love more as a result. We can't stop at knowledge and think we've got it down. Again, as I introduce this material, there's nothing wrong with knowledge. Please don't misunderstand that. I hope I gave you some today. Paul's doing it in this chapter as he's writing it, so don't misunderstand that first verse like people do. We need knowledge, but we need knowledge applied. And the ultimate application of all that we're taught is love. All Christian behavior including the exercise of our liberty, should be guided by the principle of love.